Good morning. I'm still pretty new here, so I'll keep introducing myself. My name is Chase Jacobs. I am the Minister of Training here at Desert Springs, and today is a great Sunday. We're jumping into a new series in uh, certain statements through the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open to the book of John, chapter 6. This series is called I Am. We're going through the I Am statements, what are called the I Am statements in the gospel according to John. What these are are several instances where Jesus makes rhetorical use of the phrase I Am in in a special way. You might be familiar with a number of these. I Am the Good Shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. On and on, we're gonna look at each of these in turn, but to really understand the significance of what's going on when Jesus keeps saying, I am, I am, throughout the Gospel of John, it helps to have some familiarity with the book of Exodus, which as it turns out, you do, because as a church, we just finished studying the book of Exodus last week. So as a church, we started sometime early this winter and have been going all the way through, we worked all the way through the book of Exodus. Now, if you remember the book of Exodus, if you were here for that study, uh, what the book of Exodus is, is the rescue of God's people out of their slavery in Egypt. And there's a really interesting moment in the beginning, the very beginning of that book of Exodus when God appears to his prophet Moses in the form of a burning bush and tells Moses that he is going to use him as his instrument to redeem his people out of slavery. Um, You don't have to turn in the book of Exodus, but this is from Exodus chapter three. Something really interesting happens in this interaction that God has with Moses. Starting in verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Well, what should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, or in Hebrew that's Yahweh, it's, it's from the root to be, it's, it's I am. Tell the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, I am, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now those, those verses in Exodus chapter three, Ryan preached through in February of this year. So if you haven't heard that, go listen to that and, and, and learn about, because we don't have time to look into what it means that, that God is I am. What does that mean? That he's the, the self-existent one. He's the one that, that is. It's, that's incredible by itself. But, but you can see here what Jesus is doing, can't you? When through the gospel of John, he keeps on repeating, I am, I am. He's referencing this moment in Exodus three, this moment of divine self-revelation. And as I was thinking about these verses this week, I I just started thinking about about Moses and how little Moses knew in that moment when God's speaking to him from the burning bush. How little Moses knew about God. he He didn't even know God's name. And then I think about how much Moses knew at the end of Exodus 
with what we concluded with last week. How much not only Moses knew, but the whole people of Israel knew. They had seen the plagues. They had seen the Passover. They had seen the Red Sea crossing. They had been fed by manna in the wilderness. They had seen God on top of Mount Sinai. They had received the Ten Commandments, the instructions for the tabernacle, the cloud, and the fire. How much did they know about God? How much had God revealed of himself to his people at the end of the book of Exodus? And it doesn't stop at Exodus. It just keeps on going. And in many ways, the Bible is just an account of God revealing himself in words and in actions all the way until we get to the Gospels where we have Jesus, the full manifestation, the apex of God's self-revelation to his people. That's, that's what John is trying to say in this Gospel. If you look in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word... The revelation of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So for John, that's the point of Jesus coming is to reveal what God is like. And that's what Jesus is doing when he says, I am, I am, I am. He's, he's God himself telling us what God is like. Isn't that worth meditating on? That's what we're going to be doing for the, the next several weeks, starting with this first I am statement. I am the bread of life. So as it happens, this is actually the longest, what's called a discourse in the Gospel of John. It's a lot of verses. We're going to read all of them because this phrase doesn't really make sense unless you take it in the whole context, okay? So, so settle in. We're going to be reading all the way John 6, 22 through 59, okay? But you didn't come to hear from me. You came to hear from God, right? So we're going to read it all. Here we go. Starting in John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, you don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of our God. Amen? Amen. So there's a lot to cover here. We're going to work through this passage and we're going to break it down into four sections. So we're going to start with verses 22 to 29 where Jesus teaches about the bread that perishes. So verses 22 to 29 is the bread that perishes. But to really get the impact of what Jesus is saying when he talks about this bread that perishes, it helps to have an idea of the context preceding this discourse, okay? So in verses one to 15 of this chapter, of chapter six, we have John's account of the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. He is teaching out really in the middle of nowhere and lots of people, they think even closer to 20,000 if you factor in the women and children, they come to Jesus to hear his teaching and then they're hungry and, and they don't have any food. If you know the story, there's a little boy, he's got the five barley loaves of bread, the two fish, and and Jesus gives thanks, and and he multiplies it, and they eat, and there's enough where there's 12 baskets full of food left over to feed 20,000 people. It's it's really a dramatic scene, as John tells it. If if you look in verse 14 of chapter 6, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come to the world. And then perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus is up in the mountain. The disciples set out on their own to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we have another miracle. Jesus walking on the water. He goes to their boat. He joins them and then he goes with them together to 
the other side. And that's where we pick up in verse 22 where we've got these crowds that were on the one side of the lake. They're looking for Jesus who has just fed them. They're trying to find him. They don't know where he went. He's not where they left him. And you get this sense, don't you, in these, these opening verses of kind of a frantic energy. They're all getting in their boats and they're rowing all around the Sea of Galilee trying to find where Jesus is until finally they come to Capernaum and there is Jesus probably teaching in the synagogue from verse 59. And they find him and they say, Rabbi, Teacher, where, where were you? How'd you, get, how'd you get here? We've been looking for you. And look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. How, how interesting is that? He just kind of cuts through all of that frantic energy. He's not impressed by the numbers of the crowds. He's, he's not fooled by the fact that they call him rabbi. What does he do? He, he really confronts them, doesn't he? It can almost seem harsh to us, except that we realize that our Lord is actually being incredibly kind. God is kind to us when he doesn't let us persist in a delusion, but he confronts us at an issue of our hearts. These people didn't understand for all their energy, for all their excitement, that there was a problem with their motives. And Jesus is going to call that out in them. Why are they seeking Jesus, really? Is it because they saw the signs that he did and they believed that he was the only son of God sent from the Father? No. What does Jesus say? It was because they ate their fill of the loaves. That's why they're looking for him. This could mean simply that, that they had their material needs met. We know from the other gospels that, that a lot of the people that were following Jesus were poor. And here's this religious teacher coming on the scene and he offers them the promise of unlimited food. If you're hungry, that would be very attractive, wouldn't it? You would follow Jesus if for nothing else than he was your meal ticket. But there might be something more in this, that, that Jesus is saying that their motives for seeking Jesus are really political. Remember where it said they wanted to make him king. What they see when they see Jesus doing these miracles is not what it testifies to that he's the son of God. Instead they see power. And they think I can take advantage of that power. If I had some of that power, if I was on Jesus' side, then, then anything would be possible. If you remember at this time, the people of Israel, the Jews, were enslaved by the Romans. And so they think, Jesus will be our king that can free us from the Romans. We can finally have our land back. We can have our freedom. But either way, their motives are, are not right. Their sights are set too low. And Jesus confronts them. He says in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is undoubtedly referencing verses from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love 
for David. What is God saying through Isaiah? What is the not bread that they keep on working for and spending their money on? It's anything other than him. He says, don't work for that. Come to me. Listen to me. What he's talking about is idolatry. And so is Jesus. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving just a few days ago. We had a wonderful time. Some friends invited us over to their house. Uh, The food was delicious. Giant turkey, lots of corn stuffing. The cranberry sauce from the can, right? Not the real stuff, the can. That's where it's at. And And I had this moment where I was sitting, I had just eaten my first giant plate. It's totally clean. I'm sitting there, I can tell that I'm already full. And what am I thinking? Do I go and get more? I went and got more. I, I stuffed my face, frankly. It was, it was wonderful. Anybody else relate to that? Anybody have that experience, Thanksgiving? Anybody eat so much on Thursday that you haven't eaten anything since? No. Of course not, because that's not how it works, is it? Even the biggest, most delicious meal It only satisfies for a few hours. Then you have to eat again. It perishes. So it is with everything in this life that we frantically try to take hold of, to consume, to satisfy what is the deeper longing in our hearts, to satisfy what can truly only be satisfied by God. That's what Jesus is getting at. And we all do this. We tell ourselves, okay, if I, if I just had this, if I just had this career, or if I just had this relationship, or if I could just experience this experience, or whatever it is, we tell ourselves that there's things that if we had that, or if we kept that, then we would be satisfied forever. And then we get that thing, and it, and it might be really satisfying for, for a moment, and it might be a really good thing. But after we eat it, We're hungry again. It's Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes in this life, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He says that to the crowds, and I think the crowds start to understand what Jesus is talking about, because in verse 28, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They understand that Jesus is saying, your sights are set too low. You need to look up. But they get it wrong, don't they? They still make it about works. What do I do? do? More, More frantic energy. Jesus, in effect, in verse 29, says, stop working. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's really, it's a remarkable claim. We, many of us, most of us here, are probably used to Jesus talking like this. We recognize that Jesus is from God, but this crowd understands that what Jesus is saying is radical. He's saying all of your longings, all of your desires, all of your pursuits, they're not going to be satisfied until they're satisfied in me. That's a big deal. And they, they get that, so they ask in, in verses 30 to 35, they ask Jesus to explain that, and Jesus explains that he is the bread from heaven. They say, Jesus, what, what sign do you do then that we will believe in you? 
Has that ever struck you as kind of odd? It has when, when I've read this before. I mean, didn't he just feed like 20,000 people? And here they are next day. Get, what sign are you going to do? What else do you need, right? And in one way, look, that's just our hearts, isn't it? Especially when it comes to spiritual things. We are hard-hearted. We are hard to convince. But I think there is more to that question. Because in verse 31, it says that they start asking about manna. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Why do they do that? Why do they start talking about manna all of a sudden? Well, it's, it's because they're familiar with Exodus also. And there's been a lot happening in the last couple of days that is reminding them of the Exodus. You think about it. We've had this miraculous feeding in the wilderness. And then a miraculous crossing of water with God's people. Verse 4 of chapter 6 says that all of this is taking place at the time of the Passover. John hasn't included that detail for no reason. So, so for these people, there's all these buzzers going off. They're thinking, Exodus, Moses. We saw in verse 18 of chapter 6 that they ask, is this, is this the prophet? That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses tells Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it's to him that you shall listen. That was a prophecy that Moses made at the end of his life, and the people of Israel have been waiting for this long-expected prophet like Moses, another deliverer, to rescue them. And here Jesus is, doing these signs, talking this way, it's all screaming Exodus, Moses, and so they say, prove it. We think you're the prophet, the one like Moses. Moses gave us manna. You're going to have to do better than barley loaves, Jesus. Moses gave us bread from heaven, the likes of which no one has eaten before or since. Jesus, give us the manna. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my father. And my father's going to give you the true bread from heaven right now. And they're like, oh man, this is it. Okay, we were right. He is the prophet. Jesus, give us the bread. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is not bread that perishes. What Jesus is saying is all of that long-expected hope, the, the events of the Exodus, Moses, the manna, even the tabernacle, all of these things were a shadow that points to Jesus as the substance. He is right here. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He is the bread that comes from the Father. And the crowds have a surprising response to this. And then Jesus has an even more surprising response to them. In verses 36 to 46, we see that Jesus is the bread that makes many grumble. Skip down to verse 41. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? How does he now say that God is his father? They clearly don't remember their Christmas story, do they? 
There's really a lot of irony here. They say, wait, wait, we know Mary. We know Joseph. They're, they're just ordinary people. Jesus is just an ordinary guy. Where does he come off saying that he just came from heaven? They think, to quote C.S. Lewis, he's either a lunatic or he's a liar. But either way, he's not a good teacher, right? But we, we know the truth. We know that he's actually the Lord. We know, according to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, that Mary was a virgin and that God came to her, revealed himself to her through the angel and said, Mary, you will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and then will form in your womb the union of the second person of the Trinity with the human flesh of Jesus of Nazareth and to, and to truly God, truly man, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, or as John says in chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know what's going on in that little manger in the town of Bethlehem. And you know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? A house of bread. We know that that little baby is God in the flesh come to reveal who God really is. So we know that when Jesus says he is the son of God, the one sent by his father, the one who comes from heaven to give life to the world, we know that that's not an exaggeration. He's not crazy. He's not lying. It's true. Jesus is the son of God. Merry Christmas. And when Jesus says that he is going to offer them eternal life from God because he has come from God, that's true. He is the true bread from heaven. But these crowds grumble. And that's another great Exodus parallel right there, isn't it? These Israelites grumbling about the bread that God has given them. But this is something of a building theme. If you were to read the whole book of John, you would see that there's this theme developing of two different reactions to Jesus. There's either belief or opposition. Some people see the signs, they hear Jesus' teaching, and they are drawn closer to Jesus in faith. They hear, like Peter will confess in verse 68 of this chapter, they hear the words of eternal life, and they come to Jesus. And other people see the same signs, they hear the same words, and instead of being drawn to Jesus, they are repelled by Jesus. They are offended by Jesus because they hear in what Jesus is saying claims to authority over their life that they're just not quite comfortable with. They hear in the words of Jesus a threat to their status quo and their world just as they like it. They hear in Jesus' words a call to deny their other loves. Because to take and eat the bread of life means you have to spit out all the bread that perishes. But they just like that taste too much. So rather than believing in Jesus, they grumble. And that grumble starts turning to plodding. And that plodding starts turning to opposition. The opposition starts turning to hostility. This building theme through the book of John until these same people that at one time were eating the bread that Jesus offered them are screaming, crucify him. And in these verses right here, 
John is doing something really interesting. Jesus is lifting the veil, as it were, on what is behind those two human responses of belief and opposition. There's a lot in these verses that that we can't unpack, but just listen to what, what Jesus says in verse 43. He says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Or as Jesus said in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You hear that? Not everyone. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I love these verses. These are incredible, I mean, beautiful theology just coming out in just a few verses. And if you were to read the whole book of John, you would see this theology coming out all the time. These, these themes, these doctrines of, of predestination, of irresistible grace. God drawing those whom he has chosen irresistibly. Even what's called particular redemption, eternal security, that Jesus will not lose all that the Father gives to him. He will hold me fast. I wish we could you know, spend weeks just, just looking at these verses and, and thinking about that. And, and let me just say, if these raise questions for you, first of all, they do for me too. But if you have questions, don't, don't walk away from this place without asking those questions. Even, you know, ask me. I, I would love to go buy you coffee and we can talk about what these things are saying about this theology. Okay, this is important. But if we get hung up on that, I think we miss the larger point because these verses are not like a theological treatise in their own right, they come in this context, right? Why is, why is Jesus all of a sudden talking about lifting the veil, like I said, of what's going on in these, these two different responses? Well, it helps to know that immediately following this discourse, especially after Jesus starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, okay, we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but as, as he starts confronting these people and the, and the teaching gets harder and harder, most of those 20,000 people are going to leave. Jesus was right. They didn't believe in him. They were just wanting to eat the loaves. This is my first sermon here on staff at Desert Springs, and there's a lot of you people here. Could you imagine if next week we came back and there's only 12 of you? Man, how discouraging. Please come back, okay? <laughs> but how discouraging would that be? That would look like failure, wouldn't it? Maybe that's what the disciples are tempted. Jesus, man, we just had a crowd of 20,000 people and you blew it. Not only did they leave, they seemed kind of angry. This could go bad for us. And Jesus is saying, by lifting that veil, by saying, look, nobody can really come unless the Father draws him. He's saying, that many people turning away is according to the will of God. And I came to do my Father's will. I'm not discouraged by that. God's word has not failed. This is according to plan. Because what's the plan? That that opposition would grow. The word came to his own and his own did not receive him, John says in chapter one. That opposition would grow to the point where Jesus died on the cross. 
And that was as it had to be so that Jesus could satisfy eternally all of those who would look on him in faith. It was so that we can see in these concluding verses, 47 to 59, that Jesus would be the bread of life. All throughout these verses, there's been a contrast. I don't know if you've noticed that between dying and living or death and life. Jesus is using those two words over and over and over again. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Again and again, Jesus contrasts life and death in this passage. Why, why is he doing that? Because what Jesus is saying here is about much, much more than earthly satisfaction. It's about more than personal fulfillment. It's even more of, than about spiritual contentment, okay? These verses are not less than that. But what Jesus is saying is that he didn't come in the flesh to just make you happy or self-actualized, okay? Jesus came in the flesh to save us from death. That's why he came. These crowds could get everything they wanted. They could get unlimited bread. They could get an earthly kingdom that couldn't be stopped. They, they could get wealth, success, happy marriages. They could have a winning season. They, they could have a million Instagram followers. They're still gonna die. And then what? I love Mark chapter eight, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is confronting these people. He's confronting us because he knows that death is our greatest enemy. All of our earthly pursuits, everything that we gain in this life does nothing to solve the problem of death. None of our works can. Death is our greatest enemy and Jesus is contrasting this idea of death and life because he is offering himself as the bread of life to die so that we would not die but live. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now without a doubt, this is one of the most discussed passages in the Gospel of John. A lot of different people have come up with a lot of different interpretations of these verses. You can even see in the text in verse 52, the crowds really aren't sure how to interpret what Jesus is saying. They dispute it among themselves, verse 52. How can this man give us this, his flesh to eat? And then Jesus doubles down. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And I think it's worth 
stopping right here and saying, like I said, lots of people have come up with lots of different interpretations how to take these, these verses. And, and I think many, especially our Roman Catholic friends, I know a number of you are from a Roman Catholic background or have Roman Catholic family. I, I think they have misinterpreted these verses. Because they read these verses and they think that Jesus is talking about, about physically eating his his body and his blood, his actual body and his actual blood as it has been sacramentally transformed in the elements of the Lord's table when a priest blesses it. And, and look, if you were only reading these verses right here that, that we're talking about, I could see where you would think that, okay? Because Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I, and I love that heart that says, I want to take Jesus literally, He's saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I want to take him at his word, even if I can't understand it, even if it's hard, okay? I want to believe that. So I don't want to say, I think I appreciate that heart, but I think if you open up, that's why we read all of these verses together. If you open it up and you look at the whole discourse, you take it in context, I think you see something a little different. Look back again at verse 40. I'm going to put both of these up on the screen. Verse 40, Jesus says, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And now look again at verse 54, which we just read. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see it's the same wording there at the end? They will have eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. This is, this is something of a parallelism. Okay, so to take Jesus literally in this context is to take what he said first and let that interpret what he says secondly. So in that, in verse 40, he says, looks on the sun, and that's parallel to feeds on my flesh. In verse 40, again, he says, whoever believes in him. Well, that's a parallel in 54 to whoever drinks my blood. So Jesus has established in verse 40, what I'm talking about is is coming. What I'm talking about is believing. And then he's using this about eating flesh and drinking blood in verse 54 is, is a metaphor to explain that coming and believing, which makes much more sense if you read the gospel of John in its entirety. The theme of John is belief. I want you to believe in Jesus. That's why he's writing the book. So he's using this idea of eating my flesh, drinking my blood, not to explain suddenly shifting gears to talk about some theology about what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Do you see how out of context that would be? This isn't even the Last Supper. No, what Jesus is doing when he says, whoever feasts on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, it's one of the coolest Exodus connections in the whole passage. We've already gotten the miraculous feeding in the wilderness. We've had the water crossing, and now here is our Passover lamb. As John the Baptist says in the very beginning of this gospel account, in in John chapter 1, verse 25, he sees Jesus walking, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That sets the theme in many ways for the whole book. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus is talking about life and death. Remember Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have all sinned. We have all denied the God of life. The book of Ephesians even says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins apart from God. And this is a problem that goes all the way back to our first parents, to Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they disobeyed God and they were cast out of the garden of Eden, cast off from the tree of life. Ever since, humanity has been looking for the food of life, the food that endures to eternal life. And ever since then, apart from God, we have died. Jesus says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, they still died. Death is our greatest enemy. Sin leading to death is our greatest enemy. And Jesus has come not to make you happy, not to give you a better career, not to fix your marriage. Jesus has come to save you from death by dying himself. That's why he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What he's saying is, I'm going to offer my whole body in your place, the Passover lamb. If you remember in the book of Exodus, God saves his people from the plague of death by commanding them to sacrifice a lamb on their behalf. And every Israelite family that believed that and sacrificed a lamb, spread the blood on the lintel of their door, they would be spared. Death would pass them over. Jesus is saying, I am the lamb. I'm gonna offer my flesh. I'm gonna offer my blood. Whoever feasts on that by faith will have Life. This is what the whole book of John is driving to. Jesus says it again and again. My hour is coming when I'm going to be lifted up. And whoever looks on me will be saved. Because God so loved the world. God loved the world like this. That he gave his son to die. The death that you deserve to die. So that whoever confessed their sins, whoever believed in that sacrifice would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died on the cross. They took him down. They laid him in the tomb. And it, you know, if, if it stopped right there, we would still be in big trouble. Because Jesus didn't come just to die on the cross. As noble as that would have been, if Jesus had died on the cross thinking he was dying on our behalf, but he stayed in the grave, we still have a problem. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he came out of the grave because he's the bread of life. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. When they laid Jesus in the tomb, Life and death went head to head. You know what happened in the grave? Death ran out of death. But Jesus had enough life in him because he is from the God of life, the living father. He has life in himself. So the bread of life can't really die. He came back from the dead having died the death that you deserve to die and now he offers eternal life to everyone who would believe in him. You see what he says? I will abide in you. Life abiding in you. You will have eternal life, eternal hope. And then all of these other things, all of these other longings that we have in life, they'll fall into place underneath that. You will be truly satisfied. You will be fulfilled. You will have purpose. You will have these things because that 
eternal life that Jesus gives to you will well up in you. You will have the God of life in you. It's incredible. So I ask, have you eaten the bread of life? Have you believed in Jesus? And I love this. For all of John's talk about predestination in these verses, about no one coming unless the Father draws him, in the very same breath, John can just look at sinners and say, believe. That's not a contradiction for him. It's a mystery. But he says, this is your responsibility. Believe in Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you confessed that you're a sinner? Do you realize that you're tired? You've been running around, rowing your boat in this life, trying to find something else to satisfy you. It's not working, is it? Jesus is the bread of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe in Jesus. And if you're here and you have believed in Jesus, if you say, yes, I know, I have had that moment where I have taken the bread of life for myself. I want you to think about the manna in the book of Exodus for just a moment. The manna was something that had to be harvested every day. Every morning, the people of Israel had to wake up and they had to take that daily bread, that provision for the day. You, Christian, every day need to remember that Jesus is the bread of life. Every day, you need to eat again. Keep on eating. Keep on believing in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, in the eternal hope. You need to every day remind yourself that there is food that perishes and it does not truly satisfy You need to be on guard against that and you need to remember that you have believed in the Son of God and will live with him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord, you you really have satisfied our every need in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to be that sacrifice in our place. Thank you for sending your son to die the death that we deserve to die. Thank you for raising him from the dead so that we know that we have a certain hope that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. God, if there's anyone in here that has not believed in Jesus as the son, Lord, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we know that, you can't, that we can't do this on our own. My words could never convince someone by, by themselves, but Lord, you can save And so we ask that you would. And God, for all of us that have believed in you, Lord, please help us to continue to feed on you every day of our earthly pilgrimage as we wander in the wilderness. Lord, please satisfy us with the eternal life that is ours unshakably because of the work of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.